It's Thursday, January 24th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The government shutdown continues. The president and Nancy Pelosi continue to fight where the State of the Union address will be held next week. But let's take a moment to talk about the president's lawyer, former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Reports are that after a series of gaffes in what should have been a victory lap in light of the latest BuzzFeed news report, he has drawn the ire of Trump. Darren Samuelson, reporter for Politico, joins us for the latest internal drama. Next, after falling to record lows, the supply of homes on the market is rising. The problem now is the affordability of those homes for the average American. Home builders have been faced with higher costs for land, labor, and materials, but have also trended toward making luxury homes and less starter homes. Diana Olick, real estate correspondent for CNBC, joins us to talk about the lack of affordable homes. Finally, have smartphones become boring? We'll get ready for a lot of weird phone tech this year. You will start seeing more about foldable screens, pop-up cameras, and even the possible return of the Motorola Razr with a foldable display. Lauren Good, senior writer at Wired, joins us to talk about how smartphone makers are trying to make them exciting again. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Our understanding that they went on throughout 2016, weren't a lot of them, but there were conversations. Can't be sure of the exact dates, but the president can remember having conversations with him about it. Throughout 2016. Yeah, probably up to, could be up to as far as October, November. Joining us now is Darren Samuelson, senior reporter for Politico. We're always getting uh, reports out of the White House. It seems like there's always turmoil going on. I know right now it's the back and forth between Nancy Pelosi and the president on where the State of the Union is going to be held. But over the weekend, the president's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, had a few gaffes on some interviews that he did on NBC Meet the Press and I think later on in another interview with The New Yorker. And then the report started coming out that the president was so angry with the way Giuliani presented himself in those just because he was detracting from what should have been a victory lap after the special counsel disputed facts of a BuzzFeed news report. So what do we know about how the president is feeling towards his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, right now? He's definitely not pleased. Whether it's to the point that he'll fire Rudy Giuliani, that's a kind of another question. It doesn't seem like that's in the offing right this minute. But yeah, Rudy stepped all over the messaging that they were hoping to have coming out of that Friday night BuzzFeed story and the special counsel's very rare statement indicating that there were pieces to it that were incorrect. Rudy was being his typical self on his television interviews and speaking with print reporters as well, just very fluid and talks and talks and talks. And sometimes he lets the facts get out from underneath him. That's what happened there. He had to walk things back. He caused more problems for the Trump team, which, again, should have probably been very willing to sort of set back and and let Friday night's story dominate the headline. You know, it's not the first time this has happened. There there have been other instances where uh, Rudy Giuliani has gotten ahead of the news or said things that have ended up changing the conversation in ways that perhaps the president and his team don't like. So, yeah, we were hearing from sources inside the White House that not just West Wing aides, but also Donald Trump himself were not thrilled and were forced to sort of backpedal and deal with the fallout of, of Rudy's appearance. You guys spoke to a White House aide. And they were asked, who's responsible for handling Rudy Giuliani's missteps? And they said, handling his F-ups takes more than one man. So it's kind of funny. 
But, uh, you know, there's this notion that could he be the smartest man in the room, as you were saying, that sometimes he gets ahead of the news, releasing some things that people might think is a gaffe. When he said that uh, the president had admitted to paying hush money to some women and he got ahead of that story just as an effort to downplay it when it actually came out or leaked out. Yeah, that's the Machiavellian theory that uh, there is actually some method to the madness with Rudy Giuliani. And and there could certainly be something to that. We're kind of maybe in a game of chess here where we're now trying to figure out whether there are 10 or 12 moves being made ahead of time by one of the president's lawyers. And I would add, Rudy is not necessarily the one dealing with the ins and outs of the legal intricacy of this case. He's more of the spokesman for the legal team, doing the TV interviews, doing the media interviews. And there is certainly a theory that Rudy knows what's coming in this final Robert Mueller investigation, whether it's a report from Mueller or a report from the attorney general, or however that comes to be seen in the public. And then there's a lot of questions just on that, that maybe he is dribbling things out in order to get the news out. But at the same time, if he is doing that, he is certainly stepping all over the message in the in-between. And certainly when that final report does came out or, or however we see it, and it's all put out there in one piece, I think is what everyone is hoping. It seems like if, if Rudy is trickling out the details in small fashion, then that final report could be really damning on the other end. Let's talk a little bit about this past weekend when he was on there and he basically said that the president was speaking to Michael Cohen about the Moscow project all the way up until the election, basically, until he won. And Giuliani basically said that what's happening is that people aren't understanding that he's using a lot of hypothetical talk, alternative arguing uh, or arguing in the alternative, which is a legal concept. Yeah, that's um, the explanation that Rudy is giving about how on a number of occasions he has been trying to just, he says, you know, argue things in the hypothetical (laughs) that aren't necessarily rooted in fact, and simply just that is what a lawyer does. That's how a lawyer argues in court. And that's what he's doing here. When he says the things he says, they certainly sound pretty bad. And the translation, however it is happening, whether Rudy is being truthful and is actually telling us that he is arguing in the hypothetical, it's also an easy out if he accidentally does say something and then it ends up being something that he actually did know and he wasn't supposed to talk about and he can also lean back on the hypothetical point. So, And that was one you know, of his other gaffes when he said truth isn't truth. You know, people were jumping on him for that specific one. So, yeah, we've it, been in the twilight zone for a while. Yeah, right. And the last little thing I wanted to say was that some of the Trump allies have said that it doesn't seem like he's going to get fired or anything like that. Maybe he should cut back on the media interviews for a little while. Some have even suggested that he doesn't do any evening interviews because he likes to go have dinner and have some drinks. And that might be affecting his performance as well. With respect to whether Rudy should cut back. I mean, there have been some some long stretches that we've been Rudy free over the last right. nine months while he's been representing. I, this is not the first time we've heard people suggest just that. And it's not the first time that, well, we actually have seen Rudy kind of disappear for a while and people wonder, where's Rudy? I think you could probably Google that and find myriad examples of stories wondering where Rudy Giuliani has been as he drops off the radar for a couple of weeks at a time. He's keeping up with not just an active social life, as you mentioned there, but he does have this international consulting business and he's been flying around the world helping and trying to, you know, make money. And obviously he does interviews sometimes from the airport terminals and, and from some far flung places. I've had some conversations with him on the phone from the Middle East and other parts of the world. So he certainly continues to do his job, I would add he's doing it pro bono, he does. So, um, you know, if you're firing Rudy Giuliani, you're not really necessarily taking him out of the picture completely, given (laughs) he wasn't really working for money in the first place. Also, you might technically take Rudy's title of Donald Trump lawyer off, but that's not going to stop Rudy from talking to reporters and and being an in-demand voice on television. So he would continue to be seen and heard, even if he wasn't technically Donald Trump's lawyer. And I'm sure would command attention, even as a former, quote unquote, Trump lawyer. Darren Samuelson, senior reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The builders say, look, we have higher costs for land, 
labor, materials. We cannot build entry-level homes and still profit on them. Look at the millennial generation. They're urban. They are social. They want to be near a city. And that's not where the builders can afford to build those entry-level homes. Joining us now is Diana Olick, real estate correspondent for CNBC. You know, owning a home has always been one of those things that most everybody wants to achieve. It, it's been a marker of success for a long time. And with the housing crisis and the bubbles popping, all sorts of crazy stuff. I mean, it's really tough to grasp what's going on unless you're following it closely. It just seems like home ownership is increasingly out of reach for typical Americans. Right now, we have a situation where there's more homes for sale but affordability is a problem. The affordability of these houses for typical Americans, middle-class Americans is dropping. So what do we know about this? What happened in the last couple of years was that home prices really heated up very strongly. And that was because you had millennials aging into those home buying years. I mean, a lot of people said, oh, millennials don't want to buy. They want to rent. They want the freedom. But really, when they finally got married and started having kids, they did want to buy a home. And so you saw demand really increase over the last couple of years. But at the same time, you had home builders really operating at very low volumes because of the housing crash. You know they got destroyed following the crash of the housing market and the subprime mortgage crisis. So they were building at about, you know, 60 to 80 percent of historical norms in some areas. And so there just weren't enough houses to go around. So what happens when there's too much demand and too little supply? Prices go up. So for the last couple of years, we've seen prices really overheat. And that's priced out a lot of those entry-level buyers. Personally, I'm going through some of this where I am looking for a home right now. It would be my first home. And I live in Los Angeles, so that's the first problem. Yeah, good uh, luck. <laughs> the houses that we end up looking at are just so far out of our price range. We've had to increase what our price range is only just because of that. It's like, well, this is what it is. We have to go this route. Uh, this came out of a study from Redfin. How do they calculate affordability right now? The Redfin survey was very general, and it only looked at some of the largest housing markets as well. So I wouldn't say it's a, a complete national picture. Nothing is. We all know all real estate is local. Right, but what they exactly. did was they they took the median home price and they took the median income and then they took a 20% down payment and based it on the mortgage rate this year, the average rate versus what it was last year and said, okay, if you factor all those figures in, it costs more to have a home this year or actually 2018 than it did in 2017. So therefore, homes are less affordable today. Unfortunately, at the entry level where demand is highest, there are the fewest available homes for sale. At the high end, mid to high end, you're seeing a lot more homes come onto the market, but there's not quite as much demand up there. So those homes are sitting for longer and prices are actually pulling back. So if you look at the very middle range of LA, you see prices really high and at the low end, impossible to get in. I don't know what price point you're looking at, but if you're in the lower price point, which you know in LA is half a million dollars up, right. you're really in trouble because you're just not finding anything for sale. And if you do find anything for sale, there are 20 other people in front of you. Since this is the trend, I mean, who has the power in the buying market? It seems like deals will need to be made. Home prices would have to come down. Right. And the gains in home prices are shrinking. So you're still seeing prices appreciate, but whereas we were seeing, you know, 7, 9, 12% appreciation, now we're seeing more 3, 4, 5% appreciation depending on what market you're in. So the gains are shrinking. I don't think you're going to see a national recession in housing as in home prices going negative like they did during the last housing crash. That was incredibly rare. And it really had to do with a crash in the mortgage market and a lot of investment. 
investors, you know, you could spend hours talking about that, but that's unlikely to happen now. What you're going to see more is prices going flat to maybe up 1% to 2% year over year. That will allow some buyers to get back in, but again, it's all about that supply. The builders say, look, we have higher costs for land, labor, materials. We cannot build entry-level homes and still profit on them because we just can't afford to. Now, if they were to go way out into the excerpts, land is cheaper, maybe they could build a lot of homes for, you know, inexpensive price points, but nobody wants to live out there. So there's no demand. Right. You look at the millennial generation, they're urban, they are social, they want to be near a city or at least in a close-in suburb or some kind of walkable suburb. And that's not where the builders can afford to build those entry-level homes. What happens in places like New York or Northern Virginia where Amazon HQ2 is coming to town? What happens to the affordability of housing there? <laughs> it plummets. I know a real estate agent in Long Island City who we met when Amazon first announced and we were doing stories there and he sends me every week the uh, closed sales and they have basically jumped I don't know, hundreds of percent since Amazon announced. And this is mostly condos and tall buildings, you know, multifamily, et cetera. So rents are going up. Condo prices are going up. Those are small subsections. But if you look at New York in general, you've got not just Amazon, but Google's going in there. You have a lot more tax going in, whereas it used to be just the financial markets or New York City. Now they're not ruled by Wall Street. They're ruled by tech as well. Diana Olick, real estate correspondent for CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Handset makers really trying to make their phones stand out by doing things like having a pop-up camera that literally extends from the metal frame of the phone in the same way that a flash on a camera would. Or possibly the wildest thing we're going to see are like this rash of folding phones this year. Joining us now is Lauren Good, senior writer at Wired. There's going to be a lot of interesting things coming out in the smartphone market in 2019 and beyond. It begs the question, have smartphones gotten boring? Because there's so many weird innovations, I guess you can call them. They're going to be coming out. Foldable phones, foldable tablet screens, things like that are going to be pretty big. What do we know about this, Lauren? How, why is the market getting so weird? I think figure out why the market is getting so weird or to ask that question and at least attempt to answer it is to first look at where smartphones are. I mean, there are only so many places that you can go with a glass rectangular slab. And there are certain (laughs) innovations that we've certainly seen both happen inside the phones and from a software perspective, certainly, because software really is supposed to optimize these phones in many ways. And we've seen some, some handset makers do creative things with the designs of phones. But really, at the end of the day, we're all looking at these pretty standard pocketable glass slabs with decent cameras, okay battery life, and a lot of matching feature sets. So I think the trend that we're going to start to see, and we've already started to see this a little bit in 2018, but we're going to see more of it in 2019, are handset makers really trying to make their phones stand out by doing things like having a pop-up camera that literally extends from the metal frame of the phone in the same way that a flash on a camera would, or punching a hole through the display rather than having the big cutout notch at the top of the edge-to-edge display, or possibly the wildest thing we're going to see are like this rash of folding phones this year. We're going to start to see flexible displays come to the market in a very real way that may actually be beyond the concept phase. Sales of smartphones have gone down, so a lot of people start to freak out, at least in the investor arena. First-time customers for a smartphone, almost everybody has a smartphone now, so it's the younger crowd that are getting are, are the first-time buyers. The upgrade cycle 
is different. People used to upgrade every year. Now people are holding on to their phone for multiple years. And uh, as more to what you were speaking right now, the innovation cycle, which is what's the next big thing that's going to hook a consumer to want to buy a brand new phone. And, and the cost of these things, these things are getting into astronomical prices where people can't really buy these every year. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I think you talk to some people who follow the industry really closely and some are a little bit hesitant to use the word mature or say that the market is totally saturated. I think tech experts will refer to a, a fully mature product category as one in which all of the parts are commoditized. And so if you look at smartphones, not all of the parts are totally commoditized yet, especially at the high end. There's still a lot of customization happening at the, at the very, very high end of the market that makes it not entirely commoditized. But to your point, I mean, the total addressable market has certainly shrunk. Most people you know at this point have smartphones, something, you know, even if they're low end to mid range smartphones, those have, those have like certainly crept into the majority. And so, so when you're a handset maker and you're facing that kind of market combined with what some people are seeing as economic softness, particularly in a market like China, then you start to see lots of wild ideas being thrown at the wall. So, I mean, part of this is driven by the fact that technology is now available, something like a flexible display, which by the way, we've seen flexible phone concepts for several years now, but one, none of them have really been totally ready to come into a phone that can that can like be shipped to right. real consumers, you know. Let's drill down a little deeper into the foldable stuff because in your article, you talk about how there could be two pads for it. So a larger foldable tablet kind of thing that folds in half. So it's a little more easier to use or you make it even smaller and you can fold it and it becomes more of a wearable, almost like a foldable watch display. And then there's the Motorola Razor, which might come back. That's kind of hybrid flip phone foldable thing. Right. I mean, the Razor, we don't have a lot of details about yet because that was based on a report from the Wall Street Journal that came out last week where the Wall Street Journal had it, you know, on authority, on sources that the Razor is making a comeback. And a lot of people do remember the Razor for being an excellent little phone with fantastic battery life. And of course, then it was a flip phone. It wasn't a total smartphone. And this would be something more high concept and reportedly have something with a foldable display. Wired did reach out to Motorola for comment on that. Motorola is owned by Lenovo now. And the company responded with literally a shrug emoji. (laughs) So uh, so we didn't get very far with that. I think that's what they were sending around to press. So, uh, So we don't really know much about that yet. But yeah, when you hear that companies like Samsung, like Motorola, and, and some others, I mean, Xiaomi also just showed off a, a folding phone. So when you hear about things like that, you think, okay, maybe it's really there. I mean, these things do still present challenges. And, and to your earlier point, they could go one of two ways, right? It could be something that shrinks into something that you wear in your body or shrinks into your pocket, or it could be something that unfurls into something larger, like a tablet. But in some cases, this still feels like technology in search of a problem. Because right now, I don't know a ton of people who say, oh, I wish I could just fold this thing up and wear it on my wrist. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, you got to think of what's important to you in a phone. Uh, it needs to be fast, whether it be the apps or the internet access, uh, a good front and back camera, you know, the space and the hard drive that it has on there, a nice display screen. And it seems that's where people are trying to solve this problem with the bigger display screens, the edge to edge stuff. That's why the notch, which was such a huge thing, although I don't find it very cumbersome on a phone and the hole punch thing, which people say that's kind of weird. Once you start using these things, I, I don't think those things are really take away from the phone too much. So we're always in search of fixing the problems now that we currently have with what we got. Yeah, in a lot of ways, some of these evolutions are design choices that are made because they've been forced by other design yeah. choices. So with an edge to edge display, you present other kinds of problems. So then you come out with like a hole punch or a pop up camera 
camera and that sort of thing. And, you know, anecdotally, I was hearing from readers on Twitter after I published my story about these upcoming weird smartphones. People were saying, well, I just want better battery life. I just want something that, <laughs> right, you know. Right, the simple things. Right, right. And, and then you realize that, you know, yeah, if somebody could really figure out lithium ion, like, that, you know, that's that would be like a really remarkable technology. But I guess for now, we're going to we're gonna be looking at a lot of folding phones. Thank you very much for joining us. Lauren Good, senior writer at Wired. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.